0: shrink wrap radio number 839 justin woodbury on learning to love forgive and heal after emotional and sexual abuse and now it's time for dr dave and shrink wrap radio Wrap Radio, all
1: the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave.
0: My guest today is Justin Woodbury, author of the new book, Sheltered But Not Protected, Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal after emotional and sexual abuse in this moving yet disturbing memoir about finding healing after suffering unthinkable trauma justin recounts his time growing up in an independent fundamentalist baptist church and how its cult-like organization allowed for child abuse Justin was taught from a young age that if he followed a strict set of morals, such as no TV or worldly music, he would be protected from all the evil in the world. But one spring day in 1998, when he was followed into a barn by a sexual predator, family friend, and faithful church attender, he learned this wasn't true. Now, here's the interview. Justin Woodbury, welcome to Shrink Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And we're going to be discussing your remarkable book, Sheltered But Not Protected, Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal After Emotional and Sexual Abuse. And um, really, this book is all about your personal story, your, your, your experience that you had, And, um, and uh, it's a pretty explicit experience. And so you can be as as explicit as you as you need to be to tell your story. But basically, I'd like to ask you to take us through your story pretty much as it is in the book. Um, uh, Although we're not going to have enough time to do the, you know, it's not like reading the book. But, uh, and I'll sort of maybe ask you some questions or make comments as we go along. Is that a, a good way to proceed yeah for sure okay well start us out uh start us out tell us uh uh where you where you grew up and what the family uh arrangement was and and we'll get into it that way
1: for sure so i grew up on the west side of ann arbor michigan out in the country on a farm and i from the the time I the youngest I can remember, I attended an independent fundamental, fundamental Baptist church.
0: Let, let me cut in cut in for a moment here, uh, because I'm not sure if you're aware that I that I lived in Ann Arbor for six years. Uh, I was uh, I got my doctorate at the University of of Michigan, and so okay,
1: yeah, I did read that that you you taught there as well, right?
0: Okay, yeah, I did. I taught there. Uh, I taught there, so I was there a long time and have a lot of good feelings about and about Ann Arbor. Um, so, sorry to interrupt your flow. Back no, to your story. you're fine.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. So, uh, we, we were brought up in a independent fundamental Baptist church, and I don't regret most of that experience, but my parents were be, became Christians out of the the seventies, sixties and seventies hippie movement. And uh-huh. they felt that a lot of regrets that they had could be avoided if they were able to shelter their children, shelter us from, you know, the sex drugs and rock and roll era. Yeah. And so instead of properly educating us on different things like that, they just sheltered us from it. So from an early age, in uh, the in the pastor of the church as well. From an early age, we were not allowed to watch TV. We were not allowed to listen to the radio. Uh, women were not allowed to wear anything other than long dresses. So very Amish-like, but it was a Baptist church.
0: Yeah, that's and, that's unusual. You know, I grew up uh, in a part-time in a Pentecostal home. Uh, okay, yep. my my grandparents were Pentecostal. And they also sent me to uh, uh, fundamentalist schools, church-type okay. schools, for uh, you know, for my early years and in, in my high school. So I had a lot of exposure to that world, but it wasn't yes. as it wasn't as extreme. Also, my my parents weren't in it, so you know, okay. so I, we had a, a liberal environment at home. So I. I easily could have gotten sucked into a situation like that if people around me had not been a bit more yes. open minded than uh, than you were growing up in. Yeah.
1: So the the result was we were sheltered and the reason I call the book sheltered but not protected is because everything that they tried to shelter us from I mean we didn't even associate with other churches everything they tried to protect us from out in the world happened right within that sheltered environment within the church. So there was all all sorts of, and it was mostly sexual things. So a lot of, uh, there was incest and there was child molestation and all sorts of, hold on just a second. Sorry about that, David. I put it on do not disturb. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's all sorts of...
0: When, when you say there was incest and and all sorts of other things, wh- where are you talking about? In the church uh, or out in the world that, that that they were trying to protect you from? Got
1: it. No, within the church. So church members, church, uh, fathers molesting their daughters and uh, church members.
0: And, and you must have found out about that much later, right? You didn't know that. Much later. You know.
1: So... Exactly. So when I came out with my book, I started just finding out uh, kids that I grew up with reaching out because friends with them on social media, uh, reaching out and telling me their own stories of being abused. And it was, you know, physical abuse, child abuse, and then a lot of uh, child molestation, incest, uh, cousins with cousins and, and different things like that. So. And my own story that I write about was when I was 13, my mom's closest friend. Yes, sir. Uh, She was my mom's closest friend, a married woman of four. She began a somewhat innocent relationship with me where she sought me out at church, and she sat with me during church functions. When I was 15, there's an inappropriate interaction I, I talk about more in my book. And then when I was a junior in high school, so still a minor, She actually uh, called me one day. I was being homeschooled and she called to talk to my mom. My mom happened to be out of the house and she proceeded to tell me about this really inappropriate sexual dream that she had about me. And that turned into a really twisted, bizarre sexual abuse type relationship with her for a couple of months.
0: Now, how old was she? You you were fifteen or sixteen by now, and yes. how old was she? She
1: was in her mid thirties.
0: Pardon, in her thirties.
1: She she was in her mid thirties. Yes, sir.
0: Her mid thirties. Okay. <clears throat> I'm I'm just remembering that time, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, because I was when I was at Michigan, it was definitely definitely during the sort of hippie time that you're talking mm. about. <clears throat> but um i was not aware of what might have been going on in small churches in the area i do know that <clears throat> as often happens the university sometimes the universities are set are set down in very conservative areas that and, and there's not much communication between the two worlds and certainly i wasn't aware of you know of everything that was going on there um so tell us, you know, tell us more about um, this this I assume this was exciting and flattering to be taken into her confidence at one level. What were what other feelings were going on with you?
1: Yeah, and you're right. It was exciting and flattery, so or flattering as a 16, fifteen, 16, seventeen year old growing boy with hormones who had never dated a girl and and you gotta understand in this strict environment we were taught that if you thought about a girl it was mental impurity yeah if you liked her it was emotional impurity and any physical contact was physical impurity so i wasn't allowed to like think or touch a, a girl and so i had never done any of that so yeah when a trusted woman uh that was friends with my mom and she was a trusted confidant in the church when she approached me and started flattering me in those ways uh, it was very attractive to me and there was never and I I get this question asked a lot did you ever think that something was wrong with it never once because I trusted her and she Uh, was an adult and uh, so you know we hear so much about
0: we hear so much about it the other way around when, uh, yes. you know, m- males as the the main molesters. So, um, but I guess it's that's not always the case. Well, it's not. And it is a lot more than
1: we hear about, though, because males tend not to talk about this kind of a thing. And this is one of the reasons, this is one of my whys as to why I have chosen to make myself vulnerable and tell my stories, because there's a lot of men that this happens to, but they're ashamed to talk about it because... Mm-hmm male sexual abuse by a woman has been glamorized. It, it's, it's looked at right. as, the, as the ultimate sexual rite of passage for a boy yes. to have yes. sex with an older woman. Right. And that was not my experience at all, where it was uh, ultimate rite of passage. It was a horrible thing and horrible things to me. And it, it had consequences that lasted for years after that until I found healing. But it it, it, it isn't talked about a lot. And,
0: and so... Uh, and, uh... How did you event you know, I don't want to speed us up too much, so uh, you, uh, sure. how much um, how did you begin to find out that and to feel that it was abuse and that you know, and to have some regret about what was going on,
1: yeah, for sure. And if I can just interject real quick how it kind of ended. Uh, a couple of months into this sexual abuse relationship, she began to conspire to have me help her kill her husband because our church oh, did not believe in marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so the only way, because in her mind, she was wanting, at least what she said, what she was wanting for us to be together forever. I mean, this was more than, it was just twisted And so she began to conspire to have me help her kill her husband. And then some other things uh, took place where I just ran away from it and stopped taking her phone calls and uh, stopped answering her pages and and different things like that. I had a pager back then. I worked for a landscaping company that I had a pager with. So uh, long story short, I went to college after that. I graduated from high school, went to college. In the freshman year at college, I went to the pastor of the church to tell him what had happened a few years earlier because I had found out that she had been preying on other young boys in the church as well, and I felt a responsibility to go to my pastor. And so when I went to him, he scored the blame, and so he said, I was almost just as much as responsible for this that took place than she was, even though I was a minor— he scored the blame 51% to 49% with me being the 49, just because I was a minor. And so for years I blamed myself. I gave myself just as much blame uh, because of the, probably even more because that's what victims do. They blame themselves. And so it actually wasn't until I met my wife in 2010 and I told her the story that she was the first person that said, Justin, you were a victim. There is no blame here. You Minors cannot give consent. Yeah. And that was a completely foreign thing to me. I had never heard wow. my parents never said that to me. My pastor never said that to me. Nobody had actually said you were a victim until 2010, almost 20 years later.
0: What did you major in in college? Uh, I assume it wasn't something like psychology where you might have heard about this sooner.
1: Right. Yeah. Good question. So when I graduated from high school, I went to the only college that our church allowed young uh-huh. people to go. And it was actually the pastor's brother in law's independent fundamental Baptist college. And I went and studied ministry. So there's zero psychology, zero, anything to do with that. It was just an unaccredited college run out of another IFB, or Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. So uh-huh. you're right, I didn't learn any of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting that wasn't till till you know, till you shared this with your wife. Uh, I'm wondering what, what other relationships were like for you during the period in which you had not shared this was anyone.
1: Right. So interestingly enough, I graduated from high school, went to that college, graduated from that college, and went back to the church that I grew up in. That <laughs> by that time my abuser had left and she was attending another church by then. But I went back to the church I grew up in. And so till I was twenty-nine, I was still in that same cultish environment where they believe that mental impurity, emotional impurity, and physical impurity believe that whole thing. So I didn't really have a girlfriend until I met my wife. I mean, I had off and on relationships and there's a whole whole story and a whole book I could have written about uh one particular relationship, but uh I didn't really I was never allowed to date. I was never allowed to go out with a girl. It was they believed in courtship and I didn't court anybody. So I wound up it, it it's it's a long story, but yeah, I I didn't really have relationships.
0: Wow, uh, I'm glad you used the word cult, cultish, because that's what yes. I was thinking. It, it has all the earmarks of a cult of a very closed, insulated world in which you were. It was constructed in a way to really minimize communication with the outside yes. world. Yes, and and, yes. and other other points of view and so on which generally 100%. is what a, a college experience is about, uh, is there's, you meet people who come from different environments and you share your experiences and, and you learn that, wow, there's there's a lot of variety out there, uh, but you also hopefully you learn a, a degree of acceptance in, in rubbing elbows that way.
1: Yes, yes,
0: that's 100%. It, yeah, that's what it was like for me. So I would, assumed that for some period of time you were walking around with uh, a word we haven't used here, shame, and it and sounds like there would be a lot of shame associated with, you know, this, this discovery of what you'd been involved in.
1: Shame is a perfect word. Um, I love, I don't love that word, but I, I love the distinguishment even between shame and humiliation. I mean, there's definitely shame. I had a bad I thought I was a bad person for years. Yeah. Uh, so I went to college, came back, worked at the church, but th- that that incident when I was a junior in high school being sexually abused by my mom's best friend, that incident set me off in a trajectory of other incidents, incidences for for years until I was about 35. I was I was in this downward spiral of shame and I started uh, binge eating, and as a result of trying to deal with the shame, and so I yeah. gained uh, about 120 pounds over the next several years until I was, you know, obese and unhealthy, and did not take care of my body and didn't have any self respect uh, for for years, for almost 20 years until I actually started writing the book and started realizing what happened. But uh, shame's a perfect word to describe it.
0: Yeah, was it hard for you to write this book? I mean, it's uh, you know, it's so personally revealing, and and you know, and the shame that you're talking about, I would think, would have made made it extremely challenging. What was it like for you writing the book? You know,
1: it was difficult writing the book from an objective point of view and from a point of view of forgiveness. So. I, I knew I could have gone in and written the book and just exposed a bunch of people's dirty laundry because in the book, I not only talk about my own story, but I talk about other people's stories just to prove, uh, just to shed light on the abuse that happens within yeah. religious organizations. You know, there's lots of light shed on the Catholic Church, and I've seen documentaries and everything that talk about, you know, the Mormon Church, but never the Baptist Church. So, right. Uh, I I wanted—I didn't—but I didn't want to just shed—I didn't want to just expose Dirty Laundry or air somebody's Dirty Laundry. I wanted to to be a helpful book and for people that needed their own healing to be able to read it and experience their own healing. And so I had made the decision early on to write the book in a way of—in a spirit of forgiveness. And so there were months at a time, especially when I got to the chapter about my own abuse— there were months that went by that I didn't touch the book or didn't touch the chapter or write it because I hadn't learned to forgive. And that was the the standard I had set for myself. So writing the book itself was easy. It was actually very uh, therapeutic, and actually getting my story out on paper. yeah, yeah it was a lot of healing just from doing that. Uh, in fact, my my goal that I told my wife, my goal, is if i can just help one more person heal and i didn't even realize when i said that to her at the beginning that that person was me that that that's uh, that this writing this book uh-huh. publishing the book yeah. so much healing so to answer your question it wasn't difficult to write it was difficult to write from a from a forgiveness point of view if that makes sense from a place yeah. of forgiveness
0: yeah and yet that's that's kind of a sophisticated view did you get any psychotherapy uh, during this process? I, I did
1: get some. A, a lot of, uh, went to visit different therapists. I don't know about, I don't know if they would have called it, considered it psychotherapy, but I went and visited with sex therapists and I saw uh, marriage counselors because bringing that kind of baggage into a marriage, you, you know, uh, in full transparency, you know, when I first got married to my wife. I remember the first time that I kissed my wife, it was when we got engaged because back then I was still in the Baptist church and I was, I believe that, you know, I needed to wait to to do any of that. And so right. I would have changed a lot of that now. But, you know, when I first kissed her, she was the first person that I had kissed since this whole experience with my abuser, Carolyn. And she, my abuser was the first person I had ever kissed in my entire life. And so, you know, I talk about in my book, she threw me up against a wall and, and stuck her tongue down my throat and began kissing me. And it was, that was my first ever experience. And I just remember being horrified at yeah, that experience. Right. And so when I went to go kiss my wife for the first time, I was shaking and she had to calm me down and I was experiencing all sorts of triggers, but what wound up happening is when we got married, and my wife would make any type of advance towards me sexually, any any type of advance, I would push her away, and I would uh, sometimes walk away. I would get angry. I would start shaking. And you know, I remember coming from home from work one day, and Emily was waiting for me, and she was wearing something that she thought I would really like. And when I came in the door, she pushed me up against the the door and started kissing me and i pushed her away and i said my god let me get in the door and emily changed out of what she was wearing and she threw it away and she went into the bedroom and just sobbed because she was convinced that i was not attracted to her and that i didn't want her and it had nothing to do with that it had everything to do with i was being triggered by, by my my experiences so had to get marriage counseling as well to answer your question. I got several types of counseling just to try to get through that and try to understand the difference between my wife showing me sexual advances and being able to distinguish that between her and what had happened when I was 17, 16, 15.
0: Well, you're a father now, right? You've got kids. Uh, Yes. I assume it got better. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes it did it did and it, it continues to get better i i think a healing is a journey it's not a one-time uh, incident and so i continue to heal but yeah our our marriage today is way different than it was at the very beginning for sure yeah
0: yeah, yeah. what about your wife uh educationally as, you know she sounds like she was pretty sophisticated when you first shared with her had she studied psychology at all, or does she do any kind of uh, human relations work?
1: So, interestingly enough, Emily went to a similar type church, grew up in a similar type environment, but not nearly as cultish as mine. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and she went to a bigger university and she studied to be an elementary teacher. So, she did have classes on psychology, and she even did a stint for a few years in a secular college. And so, and she's just a very practical person, too, and she sees things for what they are, and she doesn't spiritualize things like um, like we grew up doing. And so uh, she definitely was the smarter of the two of us when it came to that um, in a lot of things. But for that, for sure, I mean, she just – it was just black and white to her. And so I, I have no doubt that some of that was a result of the, the education she got.
0: Yeah, yeah. And – what is your uh, church status now, if I, may, if I may be so bold as to ask?
1: Yeah, sure. So one of the best things that have ever happened to me is COVID and being ordered in Colorado to shelter in place. Really? Uh, up until that, it was, and I'll tell you why. Up until that point, it was rare that my wife and I would not attend church. So we I, I'm from Michigan to Colorado, immediately joined a Baptist Church. We were in that Baptist Church for several years until we started noticing it it wasn't just the Baptist Church that I grew up in that was the problem. I was finding the similar problems in other Baptist churches. Uh-huh. And so we became aware of a situation of a potential predator in the congregation. And I went to the pastor, and he's like, oh, man, I will deal with this immediately. He will no longer be working with children. And the next the next service, he was still working with children. So I went to the pastor, and I said, like, what's going on? And he's like, well, you know, it's really difficult. And um, until that pastor left, and maybe even today, that guy who was under suspicion of being a predator, he had done things that had really questioned his integrity— as far as I know, he was still working with children. And so it just wasn't that we had to get out of there for the sake of, I, I, you know, when my son was born, I looked down and just realized this immense responsibility that I had to protect him. And that just wasn't going to fly for him. And as it turns out, my son is nonverbal. And so he couldn't even come to us and tell us that he had, that something had happened to him, even if he wanted to, because he doesn't talk. He has autism. And so I'm thankful that we got out of that church. But with that being said, we attended a different church, a non-denominational church, all the way up until 2020. We were told a shelter in place, so we couldn't go to church. I got distracted by trying to watch it online, so I just quit watching, quit attending. Uh, A couple months later, when Colorado opened back up, I made the decision to not continue to attend church. And so from 2020 until about a month ago, I had not stepped in a church that entire time. And the the reason I say it was one of the best things that ever happened to me is because I was able to deconstruct from the way I was brought up and from my religion and really find out what I believed and what I didn't believe, and a lot of it, most of it, was what I did not believe. I'm still learning what I believe. So, a long answer to your short question is: um, I still attend church. I still believe in God. I would still call myself a Christian, just not the type of Christian I was brought up believing I was supposed to be. Yeah, if that makes sense. So we we yeah. I, we just we just went back to a church like a month ago and we're, we're trying to get back into it a little bit for, for, for our kids sake too, because for community and and stuff like that. So.
0: Right. Right. Um, So you've talked about, you've used the word healing and, uh, and, and say more about that, about healing. And, um, how you came to experience yeah. healing. And
1: it's really my favorite thing to, to talk, talk about, right? Because so many people that I know are still healing. They would call themselves a victim of abuse or maybe a survivor. But I like to think of myself as a thriver after sexual abuse. And simply what I mean about that is, you, you know, from from 17 on until about... Thirty-seven. So about 20 years, like I referenced earlier, my life took a downward spin. I lost all self-respect, lived in shame, had no desire to be a better person, and I blamed it all on my abuse. My overeating was because of my abuse. When I started writing my book, and then particularly, like I said, the chapter of what happened with carolyn my abuser i i couldn't continue to write it because of the forgiveness part and uh, i started having nightmares almost every night about what happened when i was 17 and i had nightmares that she would show up at my work or that i was back at the church and everything and i had gotten to the point where i it was destroying my marriage My, my wife like i said was convinced i didn't love her it was destroying my work relationships. I wasn't the same at work. And so one day I just cried out and I, it was, it was just a a cry out to God. And I said, I'm not willing to forgive her, but make me willing. I'm willing to be willing. And
0: you're willing to be what?
1: I'm willing to be made willing, but like, it's like, uh, I, I was basically like, you've got to do this because I can't do it. I, I, I don't have the capability, the capacity within myself to forgive what this woman did. I had these yeah. deep, deep hatred and this desire to hurt her and yeah. to see her suffer for what she had done. And so I was very bitter, very angry and justifiably so, but it was destroying me. And, and so when I cried out like that, it was almost, it was almost, I would say, miraculous. The, the next day, something had changed. And over time, I noticed that I no longer had these angry feelings, and I was able to continue to write the chapter about what had happened. And I, I really believe, looking back on that day, that I had a breakthrough and that I truly chose to forgive the the right way. And I, I you know part part in my book i talk about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not i had thought up to that point that to forgive her meant that i had to say it was okay what she did and it wasn't okay and it never will be okay but that's not what forgiveness is and so i really had to come with grips to come to grips with what forgiveness truly was for her but the minute i forgave her i started to heal and, and
0: and take us through that what forgiveness really is, if it's you know if it's you know, still holding her accountable, but how would you describe it?
1: yeah, I, my favorite quote during studying that time was, uh, to forgive somebody is to let a prisoner free, only to realize that that prisoner was you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I love that quote that's because that's. Yeah. That's a yeah, good that, that's exactly what it was. I thought that I was letting her free, and in reality, I, I was setting myself free. And so that's really what I experienced is just a a freedom from that.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Not
1: saying it was okay. Not not reconciliation either. So, um, whether or not she's sorry, and whether or not I forgive her, th- those are two separate, different things. I can't make her be sorry. Um, she couldn't make me forgive her, but I chose forgiveness. I don't know what she's done. As far as I know, she doesn't even think she did anything wrong. Not not once has she ever reached out to me and apologized or anything. So mm-hmm. I don't know where that is, but there will never be a, a reconciliation. Like I would never sit down with her and talk to her. So that, that's another thing of what forgiveness is not. I, I don't have to ever see her again. I don't ever have to think good thoughts about her. Uh, she's still... A predator as far as I'm concerned, and I've gotten independent verification that that probably is the case, uh, but that's not my problem anymore. I, I wrote the book. I've exposed what it is. In fact, in my book, she's the only person that I call out by name, uh, Carolyn. Uh, everyone else in my book, I change their names because they are innocent. So, but... That that forgive you. You have another
0: child, right? Not just the uh, the boy who's autistic.
1: Yes, sir. Yeah, Uh, we have a daughter, Juliet, as well.
0: And how old is she now?
1: She just turned seven. Okay. So, but you know, the the healing kind of it, it started when I was able to write that chapter, and it kind of came full circle believe it or not, when I actually published the book and it was out there and I went to Amazon and I typed in sheltered, but not protected. And I saw it on there. And I, then I started to see some reviews that kind of, but not put an end to my journey. I'm still on a journey, but it, it set me off in a different direction. And when it got, when the book got published, uh, And then I started reading other books. I started really healing and really caring, uh, you know, self-care, whereas before I had no self-respect. I started to really respect and care about myself. And I I read the uh, Brene Brown book called Daring Greatly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where she talks about the difference between shame and humiliation. So I started to really understand myself and diving into books. And then I started having this desire, you know, I took my daughter to Disney World for her uh, sixth birthday, and while we were there, I, you know, and I look at pictures, and I don't even recognize myself, but while we were there, I had to sit down constantly, and my feet were tired because I weighed about 300 pounds, and I, I, I just remember... Getting home after that and uh, falling asleep on the couch one night watching TV like a week after getting back from Disney World. And then I started to go upstairs to go to bed and I had to stop to catch my breath on the way up. And I just remember thinking to myself, if I didn't do something about my lack of self-respect for my own body, uh, that that I wouldn't be able to see my daughter grow up and get married or I wouldn't be able to dance with her at her wedding because I would be too out of shape, and it really, really bothered me. And so I determined right then and there to make a change. So um, in the past year, I've lost almost a hundred pounds and have been able to keep it off.
0: Wow, good for because you! Because
1: of the healing, yeah, thank you. Um, but it, it all started with you know being able to write the book, getting the counseling, getting the, the therapy that I needed to. Learning to forgive and set myself free. It started with that and then it just kind of snowballed. And I'm still learning what that looks like too. I yeah, like I said, he, healing is is still a journey, so I'm still finding different ways that I can heal, uh, but it's just been a an amazing thing.
0: It sounds like uh, books have been an important part of that journey. Self-help books would would you say? You mentioned
1: they were, yeah. Brene Brown. I've read several of her books. Uh Uh, I also read. uh, There's a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear, and that book really helped me understand how to form small habits. So atomic habits, so small incremental changes Mm -hmm. over time, leading to exponential results. And so when I actually read that book and understood that all my life I had been more results focused and not process focused and that why I had, why my habits had failed before uh, that book really set me off in a a trajectory that, um, and it made me just thirst for knowledge and and more books. So a lot of self-help books, a lot of healing books, uh, a lot of books on how to build better habits and stuff like that. So Uh um, this past year has been a, a year of book reading for me and I've, I've
0: loved it. Oh, that's, that's great for me to hear, because uh, so many of the people that I interview are uh, authors of what might be uh, called self-help books, and, okay. you know, it's possible to kind of get jaded about all that, uh, that many people are writing more or less the same thing, but mm. it's important to hear an inspiring story like yours. How is this affecting um your work life? What do you see as your vocation? Uh, where, What is your work, and where is it heading?
1: Yeah, I, this is one of my favorite stories. I think I've probably said that before, but uh, so if I could give you a little bit of background. When I left Ann Arbor, Michigan to move out here, I had left the church that I grew up in, and I had been making $24,000 a year, and when I left the church, you talk about shame. So a part of the story, too, is I I liked the assistant pastor's daughter at the church. Now, I'm, I was 29 years old, but I got caught ha- with emotional and mental impurity because I, I thought about the pastor's daughter. I liked her. And so I was brought before the church. I was shamed. I was church disciplined. And oh, wow. I lost my huh. job in, in Ann Arbor at 29. And so... The lowest I had ever been was during that time, and I moved from Ann Arbor to Colorado to get away from it all. And I remember driving. It was February 15th of 2010. I was driving to Colorado from Michigan, wondering if I would ever be able to replace that income, that $24,000 a year, and never thought in a million years I would. I got a job at uh, an insurance uh, marketing organization, so it's called an FMO, And I was the marketing assistant, and that was a good. And and the the starting pay was thirty five thousand a year, and I was so excited about that. And then the boss, Carlin, who is such an inspiration in my life, he told me, he's like, Justin, if you if you work for the company, there's no glass ceiling here. If you put the company and you you, um, you value the company, and you're not just working for the paycheck, but you're working for the company itself. And he told me a Zig Ziglar story that I loved, uh, but he, he's like, if you do that, there's no glass ceiling here. And so right before publishing the book, but well along into my healing journey, the, and I had worked myself up to where I was a marketing developer for the company in 2019, actually the beginning of 2020, right, right before the pandemic hit the, the States, the chief marketing officer, walked out of the office out of his office and he never turned around and looked back. He, he quit. And because I had come so far in my healing journey, my wife said, you should go after that position. You've earned that. You deserve that. And I'm I'm telling you a year before, I would have never even considered it. I would have not even had that conversation with Emily, but because I had come so far in my healing and my shame re, re- uh, Uh, resilience or whatever Brene Brown calls it. I had come so far in that journey that I decided to go after that position. And so the way the the story goes is in 2010, in February 15th of 2010, I was driving to Colorado wondering if I'd ever replace my, my former income of $24,000 a year on February 15th, 2020, exactly 10 years later, I was named chief marketing officer of the company and my first year bonus was $24,000 a year. Oh, wow. And so the, the healing and the, the forgiveness and the thriving, that's why I say, I'd like to say I thrive. Yeah, thriving, yeah. I'm a thrive after sexual abuses because that's, that's the kind of thing. And it's only gotten better from there. Um, I, I love the team. I'm able to lead. It's a privilege to lead the team. Uh, Another reason that drove me to read a lot of books was how to be a better manager uh, and a better chief marketing officer, so uh, marketing books as well. But uh, my current state is I'm the, the chief marketing officer of a large insurance organization, and we support thousands of independent financial advisors all over the country. And I absolutely credit my healing to my ability to do my job and to do it well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if I understand it, then you you're helping other people to uh, become uh, independent uh, financially independent, working with the company. Well, so
1: they're 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 financial advisors. So they're they're helping clients. So retirees, pre retirees, they're helping them uh, retire smoothly, and they're helping them have sustainable income because. You know, most retirees or or pre-tirees have sustainable income with their job. And so these independent financial advisors are helping clients become financially independent after retirement. Uh, What I do is I lead a team that helps these financial advisors get in front of their next prospect or client. So you've probably gotten like invitations in the mail to like financial seminars or you sure. might hear a commercial on the radio of a financial advisor saying, here, here, help me, you know, come meet with us. We can help you get your money out of the volatile stock market. Uh, my team helps design those mailers, the wordings for them, the, the radio commercials. So we just help independent financial advisors market themselves to their prospects and clients, if that makes yeah. sense.
0: Yeah. So what's your vision for the future?
1: Man, that's a good question. So uh, next April, or this April, I guess, next month, I should say, I am flying down to a place in Ohio, and I'm going to be one of the keynote speakers at an abuse prevention meeting. It'll be my first time I've actually spoken in public about my experience. I mean, I've been on several podcasts, but it'll be my first experience speaking in public depending how that goes, I I could see myself going in two different directions. One, continuing to be the chief marketing officer here. I love my job, love my team. Uh, But I also have this desire to be maybe a motivational speaker, maybe an advocate for male victims of sexual abuse. Because like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I think there's a lot more. Statistically, I know there's a lot more, but men don't talk about it. And so uh, I don't know if it would be Motivational speaking at those types of, you know, abuse awareness events where they can see somebody that did experience sexual abuse but is now thriving uh, not as a result, but in spite of it, thriving in spite of that sexual abuse. So uh, I, I I love getting up and I love motivating people. and I feel like I have a story to tell. and yeah. the hundred pound weight weight loss and the thriving, you know i I graduated with a with a fake degree in music. Um, and for someone who graduated from a non-accredited home church college um, to be able to say that I'm the chief marketing officer of a large financial organization, I, I mean, I, I'm not the richest person in the world and I'm I'm not, you know, the chief marketing officer of Amazon or anything like that, but uh, – You know, depending on how people define success, I would say that I'm, I mean, I I already know I'm successful because I have a beautiful family. I have a gorgeous wife that loves me and I have beautiful children that love me and I love them. So I already consider myself a successful man. uh, But being able to even thrive in the business world, in spite of the way I was brought up and the abuse, uh, I think that could be motivating and inspiring to other people. So uh, I don't know what the future holds, but that's definitely something that's on my mind constantly. is Is the ability to be a, maybe a motivational speaker, yeah, uh, yeah, and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised, and uh, and and uh, you've really come a long way, and uh, and it is a a very inspiring story. So, is there Thank anything you. else that uh, that we should cover that we haven't here? You know, I often get asked what
1: my advice would be to somebody who is experiencing any type of abuse, whether it's spousal abuse or mental or emotional or physical abuse. And, you know, in my book, I have a whole chapter on, you know, first, you have to get out of your environment. Uh, You can't continue to heal if you're still being hurt. And so that, that and I have a whole list of things. But since then, if I had to rewrite the book, I think that I would encourage people that the first step would be recognize that you are in an abusive environment so many times i've had people reach out to me and say well my abuse wasn't really what yours was but i've experienced this and people downplay their own abuse because they don't recognize it as abuse or i've had people say yeah my husband my husband beats me but if i would just learn to stop back talking him or if i would learn to have his food, his dinner ready when he gets home and yeah, they, they right. blame themselves. And so I guess the advice that I would give to anyone that's experiencing that type of abuse or any type of abuse is to, to recognize it for what it is and stop making excuses for your abuser. Uh, because until you recognize this is abuse, plain and simple, clear cut, uh, until you recognize that, then you, that th- th- to me, that's the first step. And so that's what I always like to, uh, say to people who would ask me, you know, what would you recommend? What what advice would you give somebody who is in an abusive environment?
0: Well, that's a good closing message, I think, for, for our talk. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to meet you. And uh, you've come a long way. And I can tell you're going to go a lot further. And uh, you're going to be a blessing to people. So, uh, Justin Woodbury, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio.
1: Thank you, Dr. David. I appreciate it.
0: I'm very impressed by the courage of my recent guest, Justin Woodbury, author of the 2023 book, Sheltered But Not Protected, Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal, after emotional sexual abuse. One can only imagine the shame that would have to be overcome to write a book such as this. I asked him about this in the interview. He acknowledged that for a long time he was stalled out on the chapter in which he describes the abuse in some detail. At the same time, He knew it was so important for him to break through his resistance, not just for the sake of his eventual readers, but even more so, to be able to claim his own healing. Talk about courage. He even goes so far as to actually name the woman who sexually abused him over a period of years. All the other personalities in the book, he took pains to fictionalize so that they could not be recognized. Personally, I'd be worried about getting sued for libel. For Justin, it was most important to bring out the truth. I know that it also took courage to come out and admit he'd been sexually abused for years by a married woman and mother of four. Justin knew that there was a danger of being mocked and or disbelieved. The locker room conversations of adolescent males are often laced with fantasies of making love to an older woman. There is the idea of conquest in these fantasies, and many readers, listeners, will be aware of the term MILF, M-I-L-F, which has found its way into TV series and movies. Such was not the case for Justin, who was raised in a cultish Baptist spinoff that preached sin and eternal damnation for anyone who violated their extraordinarily prudish strictures. No movies, no dancing, no makeup, no revealing clothing, no fantasizing about such. Justin shares being repulsed by the first kiss he received from his wife, which involved a bit of tongue. Justin also feared that people would read his narrative in disbelief that a woman can sexually molest a man. This mistaken belief only adds to the guilt and confusion of the male on the receiving end of such attention. I seem to recall having interviewed other men in the past who had been raped by women. Justin stands out to me as an incredible example of human resilience. He's come all the way from hiding his sexual trauma in the darkness of shame to bringing it out into the bright light of becoming a motivational speaker. He envisions telling his story in public forums to reach others who may have been similarly traumatized and inspiring them by his own example to realize that they can find healing and the possibility of living a full and fruitful life as he has done. In fact, he shared he's about to speak at an abuse awareness event in a few weeks. It's easy to imagine that he will be quite successful in this venture. It builds on skills that he's already developed to a high level in his regular day job as a chief marketing officer in which he motivates a large force of insurance salespeople. Given All that he's been through, Justin, is an incredible example, not only of human resilience, but also the power of inspirational presentations and self-help books to jumpstart people suffering in silence to embark on their own journey of recovery. In the interview, I was struck by the insight and sophistication with which Justin could speak about issues of sexual abuse. I discovered that he's been actively involved in a process of self-education through seminars and books by such inspiring authors as Dr. Brené Brown. In my opinion, Justin Woodbury comes through his ordeal as a real hero, and I recommend his book, Sheltered But Not Protected, Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal, after emotional and sexual abuse. Well, hello, Dr. Dave. We would like to thank you for such a wonderful podcast. Although we just started listening a few months ago, we want to
1: contribute financially to all the generous and genuine work you've put into each interview. Having been teachers for many years, we know how valuable it is to understand human development.
0: Your podcasts are both particular and comprehensive. By interviewing such accomplished professionals, you help point us toward great books to read
1: and new discussions to have. You have kindled our passion for lifelong learning again. From the Northwest, thank you so very, very much, Jim and
0: Colleen. Thank you.: Thank you, Jim and Colleen. Thanks for becoming financial donors and encouraging others to follow suit. Once again, time to shrink, wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest. Justin Woodbury, author of the book, Sheltered But Not Protected, Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal After Emotional and Sexual Abuse. I am so impressed by his book, by his healing, and by who he has become. Next week, my London associate, Isabella Clark, will be interviewing a truly incredible woman, Dr. Gay Bradshaw who holds doctorate degrees in ecology and psychology and has been sharing cultures and homes with animals all her life. For the past 25 years, her work has been dedicated to the self-determination and well-being of wildlife and domesticated animals. Her diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder among free-living African elephants has sparked a new paradigm of understanding trans-species psychology. This is the scientific recognition that animals share common brain structures and capacities with humans that govern thinking, feeling, dreaming, aspirations, and consciousness. This is not to be missed, so I hope you will join us then. And until then... This is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you dangerous.